Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, presented by me, Jimmy McLaughlin, a former Downing Street advisor on business and entrepreneurship. Our guest today is Simon Rogerson, the co-founder of Octopus Group. He says that you can broadly split people into two categories of life, those that are a drain and those that radiate energy. It is something that I wholeheartedly agree with. Simon is probably one of life's biggest radiators, giving off energy wherever he goes. Octopus are a partner on this podcast, and one of the joys of that partnership is being able to spend more time with the company and get a further understanding for what the founders Chris and Simon have built over the last 20 years. They started out as a fund management company. Now, fund management can conjure up lots of different images. It can sound a very traditional industry and perhaps even a little bit of a vanilla career choice. But we'll hear how Octopus set out at the start of this century to dramatically change it. They started it 20 years ago in their bedroom with just one phone line and one copy of the yellow pages. It is fair to say that the Octopus offices in central London are a long way from the mahogany boardrooms, thick carpets and tailored suits that you might imagine when you think of a traditional city office. In fact, when I went to see Simon over the summer, he was sat in reception in a pair of shorts. They have turned Octopus Group into one of the most powerful engine rooms of the UK entrepreneurial ecosystem and have been responsible for spinning out unicorns such as Octopus Energy. Thank you for getting in touch with all of your comments and thoughts through our email at hello at jobsofthefuture.co and on our social channels at Jimmy's Jobs. It's great to hear from so many of you. I have, though, been slightly taken aback about the amount of people that listen to this show whilst running. And so with that in mind, I've actually split up the Simon episode into two parts. There was so much great content that I thought it was worth categorising it into two different episodes. And also, who can really run for more than 45 minutes straight? Today's episode focuses on how Octopus was founded, how it became a B Corp, its social responsibilities, and how it is disrupting untrusted industries. On reflection, it makes me wonder whether I should have asked Simon about disrupting politics. Join us next week for more of an exploration of Simon as a character and how that bleeds into the culture of Octopus as an entity. For those of you that do run to the podcast, there is a heck of a strong finish to the second episode for the final sprint. Simon, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thank you. When we talked to Chris Hewlett in the second series, your co-founder, he talks about when you started out having a business plan that was about a page and a half long. Can you remember much of what was on that business plan? I think I'd be embarrassed if I went back and read it, to be honest. I mean, all my memories of the first, probably the first few years of setting up the business, I think this is true for almost every entrepreneur, actually, is just about survival. So I remember when we went out to raise the money, we, did, we had to go and raise two and a quarter million pounds. Uh, we did it using yellow pages. We spent nine months cold calling people. And, you know, we we're raising money for a business that wasn't regulated. We didn't have any products. And, you know, when people say, why did he leave to set the business up? I think the most honest answer is naivety. So I would expect if I read that business plan again, that was about a page and a half long, it would be full of lots of very naive comments. 
but the fundamental driver was still there. We looked at the financial services industry uh, 21 years ago. It was the least trusted industry in the world. And 21 years later, it remains the least trusted industry in the world. And someone needs to do something about it. And that was the reason we left. And that's still the reason we wake up in the morning and um, wanted to change things. Can you explain what a fund management company does in its, its simplest term? Because obviously you've, you've grown to beyond that now, but that's what the core part of the business was when you started out. What does a fund manager do? Uh, so if you ask, so the octopus mission, what do we wake up wanting to do? We invest in the ideas, the industries, and the people that we think can change the world. So what does that mean? It means that individual investors, people like you or me, or uh, great big institutions, pension funds, uh, family offices, they give us their money and they put it into a fund structure and we manage that money with a view to, in our case, generating a really good return for our investors. So turning a pound into a pound 50 or two pounds. But at the same time as that, we're looking for that money we invest to make a difference to the world around us. So for us, it's not just about the financial return we're generating. It's about the difference we can make uh, in the world as well. And increasingly, I think that will be seen as important. I think in 10 years time, people will care as much about the impact their money has as the return it generates. And that I think is a big shift that will happen in the industry. I definitely want to come back to impact investing because I think that is one of the most interesting trends that we see in the economy at the moment. When it came to starting Octopus, you left Mercury Asset Management, now part of BlackRock, and it was very much that you wanted to make fund management, you know, you saw a different way of doing it. Can you talk us through that and the differences that between modern day fund management that you've attempted to do with Octopus? Yeah, of course I can. Um, I think you know, going right back and say, you know, why did we leave? I, back to this point about trust, I think trust is really fundamental. So I think there was a study done the other day, actually. It said they took a, a group of PhD math students from Cambridge University who clearly will be very smart. And they tried to work out the fees you would have to pay as someone who was borrowing money on a credit card uh, off the terms and conditions. And I think there were 10 people, 10 PhD students working it out. And I think seven of them got different answers. And that just tells you everything you need to know about financial services. It's unbelievably complicated. And I think the lack of trust is the real issue. And within financial services, you can't, you can't trust someone if you don't understand them. And if you look at most fund management companies and most investment companies, and you just pick up a bit of their literature, and that bit of literature will talk about pair trading, diversification, the European stability mechanism, alpha beta, all kinds of terms that people, the normal man or woman on the street just will not understand. And from the very start at Octopus, we put something together, which called the granny and granddad test, which was a rule that said, look, if a granny or granddad would not understand what we are writing or communicating, and they had no background in financial services, then it cannot leave the building because trust has to come from a position of understanding. So that for me was, was, uh, was one of the most important things. And then second to that is financial services is an industry that exists ent almost entirely in its head. So it's, it's complex. It's around data. It's about returns. And for me, great business is simply about how you make your customers feel. And so, yes, absolutely, I want to generate a very good return. Absolutely, I want things to be very efficient. But I also want to feel connected to you. I want to feel connected to the company that's investing my money. And I want to feel connected to the causes that it's backing and supporting. And that is the big difference for Octopus. And that is the way we try and stand out in the industry. And that kind of fund management company we always wanted to build, which is one that actually makes a difference, that connects people to their investments in a way that most people just, they're just not connected to their money. 
if you ask most people, you know, do they have a pension? Then they'll, they'll say yes. Do they understand that pension is invested in the stock market? Probably. Can they tell you the underlying companies that the money is going into? Not a chance. And that is a huge missed opportunity because it's, you know, it's really important to people. It's really important to the world we live in. Some of the biggest problems in the world can be solved by allocating capital in a really smart way. And that for me is a big responsibility for a company like Octopus. It's part of, part of the reason we get up. How do you actually do that connection? So you talk about sort of people like, you know, you and me, the listener being able to invest and so on. How do you make that connection? Because I've often thought about this You, If you go to your high street bank and you say you want to open a stocks and shares ISA, you fill in 10 questions about your risk portfolio, and then your money goes to, you know, JP Morgan, Asia fund three. And then you just never think about it again or whatever it is. And there is a challenge around the future of capitalism without getting too ideological about it. And a lot of it comes down to, it's not even people not necessarily having capital. It's not understanding where their capital is. And so how do you create that connection? It's about education. It's, it's about communication. It's about when you're making an investment into uh, you know, into a, a business, you know, we've got our venture team back to business called Olio, which is trying to solve, um, food poverty and uh, starting in the UK and now gone across into loads of different countries, millions of customers, and just explaining people and bringing that to life that says, look, food poverty is a real issue. Even in London, in the UK, food poverty is a real issue. How, here's how an investment in a company like this and a startup with a really clear purpose, wanting to solve that problem can help change the world. And your capital is going into that company and you'll feel educated. You'll understand the change your money is making. And that for me is, it's, it's one of, it's a point of communication. It's, it's bringing that to life for people. It's creating that connection. And that connection doesn't come from an annual statement that's really complicated and difficult for people to understand because they just won't engage with it. But we have all this technology, all this way of engaging with people, but most fund management companies just aren't taking advantage of that um, simply because they're existing purely in their head. So it's just about numbers, numbers on a piece of paper, and that won't engage people. It won't change their behavior. Uh, and therefore you won't create, um, you won't create the change you want to see in the world around you. So um, yeah, communication, I think is absolutely in the heart of it. Where did the name octopus come from because that's such an important moment often for entrepreneurs when they're trying to figure out what they're doing because like you say at the beginning it's it's not always straightforward where did the name octopus come from uh so there's a true story and then there's a made-up story and i'll and i'll tell you I'll, I'll, i'll tell you both so uh the, the true story is uh, we didn't want to name our company in the way that most uh, financial services companies call themselves. And this, again, tells you what you need to know about the industry, that most uh, investment companies, fund management companies, or lots of them, will call themselves after planets or gods. And uh, that, that's not our approach. Um, so we wanted a name that was really memorable and was memorable, phonetically memorable, but also visually men- memorable. And uh, when I was working at Mocha Exit Management, I sent an email out to five or six friends I was at university with. And one of them came back and one of them came back with an email. It was about a page long. And he said, look, your company's going to be this, that, and the other. And then he hit, re- hit the return key about 10 times. So I had to scroll down and see his name and said, and therefore the name of the company is Octopus. And I really care about branding. I care about communication uh, a lot more than Guy and Chris did, the other co-founders of Octopus. So I went around the corner to tell them and I, and I explained all the background and I said, oh, and, th- and therefore the name is Octopus. And they both looked at each other and said, well, if that's what you want, that's fine. Um, which kind of made me feel a bit, a, a bit sad, but 
what we learned subsequently is, you know, if you, if you have anyone with children, if, you, if you're a good mom or a good dad, you'll put up an A to Z somewhere in your house. And at will be for apple, at will be for egg, and R is almost always for octopus. Now, it's not the literary definition of a primary word, but it has recall from a very early age. And actually, the, the, the reason Apple is called Apple, Apple was actually a placeholder name while Steve Jobs came up with a really cool techie name. And then the more he lived with Apple, the more he liked it because of the simplicity. And the same thing happened uh, for us with Octopus. I remember when we were you know, 23, 24 years old, calling people up, asking them to invest in a fund or a company that was named after a sea creature uh, was really difficult. And people used to react, but every single person remembered it. And that becomes, at a certain point, becomes really powerful because you want that name recall. You want people to understand actually why you're different, how are you different, you know, from the very name of the company. So in hindsight, uh, I think we were quite lucky. Um, and, but the true story is slightly different to that. And like an octopus as well, you have spread your tentacles now much further than just fund management. And you sort of have six, seven different divisions. How did you go about sort of picking where to go first and, and how to expand? Because that must have been quite a, an important moment when you did that. No, yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, what we try and remember in all the decisions we make, so we t- we, we're, because we're a private business, we're always going to be a private business. We'll never float the company. Um, and that's because we like the freedom that comes with it and our ability to make very long-term decisions and enter new industries. But um when you go back to our mission, so investing in the people, the ideas, the industries that will change the world, and if you went, if you walked down the high street today and you said to people, look, what's the number one societal issue we face? Almost everybody of any age, any background is probably going to tell you it's climate change. And that's the number one issue. So yeah, about 10 years ago, we started building a renewable energy investments business. And this is a business that now has about three and a half billion pounds. It invests largely in solar in onshore wind across seven, eight different countries and has done so very successfully. But then just to give our way of thinking, when we thought, do you know what we thought? Do you know the second least trusted industry in the world beyond after financial services is energy? Again, it is characterized by the same level of complexity by existing providers doing things in a very certain way. Lots of frustration about the interaction. We thought maybe we could build an energy business and this is where luck uh, just comes into building a successful business. I knew a guy called Stuart Quickenden who ran Boston Consulting Group in London. And he came in actually because he, he we just moved into our new office and he wanted to see the layout and the fit out. And I was showing him around and I said, look, we're, we're thinking about building an energy business. Do you know anyone I could talk to? And he said, oh, I know these two people. So he introduced me to some very senior people from two of the very big energy companies. And they were very impressive individuals, but they weren't right for a startup. They didn't have, they didn't have the kind of street fighter and the ability to build something from nothing. And he said, but I was in, at university with this guy and he might be quite interesting. And that guy was a guy called Greg Jackson. And I met Greg the following week. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Within five minutes of meeting Greg, I knew he was the right person to build an energy business for Octopus. And he is the founder and currently chief executive of Octopus Energy, a business we set up six years ago now, five, six years ago. And it's been a tremendous success. That is luck 
But it's also about saying, you know, where do you want the business to play? Thinking about investing in the people, the ideas, and the industry that will change the world. What do, what decision would that drive you towards, both today and over the much longer term? And you know, the recent addition to our stable is a business called Octopus Money Coach. It's trying to solve financial literacy uh, and the problem that creates for people in, in society, starting in the UK, hopefully broadening out to serve potentially hundreds of thousands, millions of customers around the world. That's again a big problem when you when you start from your mission and why do you wake up in the morning? Everything becomes a bit easier. But yeah, you know, again, the only constraints I put on us is. For the next probably five, 10 years, we will be almost exclusive to financial services and energy. They are two of the biggest sectors in the world. They need to undergo massive change, massive disruption. And there's an awful lot for us to go, uh, go at within those two industries. So we'll, we'll stay there, but staying there gives still, still gives us lots of opportunity and lots of breadth to go after. Yeah. I mean, two of the, um, the biggest sectors, as you say, you know, money and, and energy two things that literally make the world go round almost. You talked there, there's lots of things that I want to pick up on and I really want to come back to Money Coach, but you talk about about not going public and remaining private. You and Chris still own a substantial amount of the business and then I understand a fifth is owned by Octopus employees as well. Talk to me through why you don't want to go public because... The reason I ask is for so many entrepreneurs that come on this show and so on, it's seen almost as the kind of Olympic gold medal moment, you know, the the sort of IPO, this is everything that that we're working towards. And I, like you, can see the dangers that, that come with that, but I would, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because obviously you, you back companies to do that as as well, you know, we're speaking on the day that Kazoo, one of your portfolio has announced that um, it's, it's going to list on the New York Stock Exchange. It would be great to kind of understand your thoughts and process behind it all. Uh, sure, not a problem. Um, and we've been very public about this. Nothing is, and, and I, we're never going to change our minds. I feel extremely fortunate uh, to do the role I do. And I'd still like to be sitting here in 10, 20, 30 years with the freedom. Uh, for the business to do exactly what it wants to do. Um, now, I'm going to answer this in, in a couple of ways, actually. One is going to be really cheesy, um, but w- w- one is that it really is about the journey rather than the end point. So to take the Olympic uh, gold medal analogy, uh, you know, I don't know what the percentage uh, of uh, Olympic gold medalists, when they achieve the kind of pinnacle of their sport, and then I imagine kind of from a mental health standpoint, it's almost all downhill from there. Everything is built up to that one moment in time. They become so obsessed with it. There was actually a study done that said, I think it was something like half of Olympic athletes would take a pill if it guaranteed them a gold medal, but the consequence would be that they would die within 12 months of taking it. Yet still half of them would do it. They become so obsessed with that as opposed to enjoying the journey and, and the training and, the, uh, and everything else that goes with it, including Olympics and athlete to the extreme. But for me, the, the biggest problem is for most companies, they're so self-interested and they are so obsessed about the bottom line that they've become almost sociopathic. So if you thought about it, if you think about how many companies that you interact with on a daily basis, and there will be hundreds you interact with every day, how many of those companies do you actually want to be friends with? And when you personify companies and you think about them like that, you realize how much of a mess 
uh, the business world is in. Because I, I won't name names, but I don't want to be friends with almost any of the companies I interact with because they're so self-interested, they're so selfish, they're so obsessed by how much money they make today because that's the requirement of most investors. Um, it's about profitability that they don't put the interests of their broader stakeholders. Um, they, they don't think about them. So those broader stakeholders are the employees, the customers, the community, the environment. So they behave in a way that our friends would not. And I don't think that's acceptable. And I think the public markets um, in some ways encourage that behavior because it does. It, it is about the bottom line more than anything else. And I didn't want to run a business that wakes up thinking about profit ahead of all the other stakeholders because I don't think that's right. Um, I think we'd make the wrong decisions. I don't think we'd behave the right way. Um, and I don't want that hanging over us. Now, at the same time, the, the bit that I, I'd add is I'm really keen that everybody who works for Octopus, you know, you mentioned the 20%, everyone who works for Octopus is a shareholder. I think it changes the way people behave. I think it makes them more accountable. They wake up seeing themselves in part of the mission of what we're trying to deliver. I think it's absolutely fundamental. It's one of the best things we have done since we set the company up, which is create this broad sense of ownership, which creates more accountability, uh, both to our customers and to one another. Uh, it's been it's been brilliant. I'd encourage any other entrepreneur and every other business to do exactly the same thing. So recently, you have become a B Corp, and that is a model which looks to put sustainability um, at the heart of everything a company does. And I would be intrigued to know how the process went for that because it is notoriously. <laughs> difficult but it does feel that we are at a bit of a moment for business particularly in the uk i think post brexit post coronavirus that the relationship between state and business is going to go through a pretty dramatic shift it tends to every 30 or 40 years anyway and it feels like we're at that that moment again and i really think that what happens with b corps is really interesting and could well be uh, a new model, but I would love to hear your experiences of going through it and what it means to you to do it. Sure. Um, so maybe a, a bit of background would be helpful. So, so that there's something in, in a company, something called the Articles of Association. The Articles of Association are basically a legal document that tells you how your company must be run. Uh, and within the Articles of Association for 99.9% .9 of companies across the world, the Articles of Association require you to put the interests of your shareholders ahead of everyone else. And this is why uh, companies behave in a uh, mildly or sometimes quite overtly sociopathic way. And the B Corp process, one of the things we did is we actually went to our shareholders and said, look, we'd like to change our articles of association. We don't want to be like every other company, not for the purposes of being different, but because we think companies should be run in a different way. So we have changed our articles of association that now requires us to consider the interests of all our stakeholders every time we make a decision. And when I say all our stakeholders, I mean our customers, our employees, the community, the environment, and our shareholders. And I think that's been absolutely fantastic for the business. And then the B Corp stamp for us, it's a bit like a fair trade uh, coffee stamp. But for companies, uh, we join a universe of probably about three and a half thousand companies around the world who are also B Corps. Companies like Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream or Patagonia, they tend to be very purpose-led. It's an independently assessed process. It's very painful. If you can imagine the most complicated tax return, it's a bit more complicated than that. 
Um, but it's a really high bar and it's very difficult for most companies to reach that bar. So there's a real pride in the people who are part of that community about what they're part of and trying to redefine what success for business looks like. And to pick up on your point about the relationship between state and business, uh, I think that's really important. So, you know, you know, governments can, uh, clearly governments can make a massive impact. Charities can also make a massive impact, but really the people with most of the resource and most of the capital are business, they're businesses. And it's changing the mindset of those businesses, which I think is so fundamental. And th this is where I get really excited. So when I talked, I've got three kids uh, and my kids are 19, uh, almost 16 and 12. And when I say to them, you know, what do you want to do? Or what kind of company do you want to work for? The, the answer comes back, not quite in these words, but they'll say, I want to work for a good company, right? I, I want to buy from a good company. I want to get a job with a good company. I want to invest with a good company. And they instinctively know whether companies are good or not good. And that's really exciting because these companies are not only one that have the most impact on the world around them, but they're also the ones from a financial perspective that I think will generate the best returns. So I think we're moving into this world, this lovely world, which very occasionally happens where you can have your cake and eat it. So you'll have the most impact on the world around you, but you'll also generate the best returns for your investors. And that's really exciting. That doesn't happen that often. And it's because exactly as you say, there's this fundamental shift in society and business, and it's about the power going back to the end customer, driven by technology. It's all, you know, there's a story I, I'll kind of digress now, but I think it's interesting. So there's a, um, imagine if we both lived in the Middle Ages, right? Let's imagine that I'm a baker and you are a blacksmith. So uh, I bring you my horse, you change his shoes, that's all fine. I pay you what you do and I'm the baker and I'm uh, baking bread and I said you, sell you the bread. And the reason it's called a baker's dozen is I throw an extra bread roll in there because bread used to be sold by weight. And it's just to make sure that I'm not cheating you uh, by using too little flour or doing something else at the moment. Now, if you suddenly worked out that I was cheating you and actually I'd sold you too little bread for what I'd charge you and it's the middle ages, you would put me in stocks and throw stuff at me or you'd throw me out in the village because people were absolutely accountable. And I think as businesses got bigger, the morality of those businesses has declined the further they get from their customer. And a lovely thing about technology and social media in particular, it's brought the power back to the end customer. They're now all powerful. They can hold these businesses to account. So businesses which behave in a sociopathic way, which are self-interested, which are selfish, which do put the profit line above everyone else's interests, they are going to get found out and customers would hold them to account. And that for me is exciting because that's going to generate change. And that's change that comes from your customers and from people. And therefore that's change that stays. So um, yeah, I think we're in a really exciting place for business today. I think it's going to be a great change and people will love it. What I agree with a lot of what you said there, but can I ask you what community means to you? Because I think it's, you know, the, we had Ben and Noel on from Gymshark first episode. Yeah. They talked about their, their community kind of including customers. And they also talked about the impact that they want to have on, on Birmingham and how the closure of uh, Rover and Longbridge around there when they were growing up had quite a big impact on the kind of way they saw business and so on. That's a company kind of based in the regions of the, of the UK. You know, you're based in the heart of the city of, of London, which perhaps at times doesn't seem from the outside to have the most kind of 
community cohesion, particularly over the last yeah. 18 months when the pandemic has emptied a lot of this out. I'd, I'd really love to know what community means to you and how you kind of define that. Sure. Uh, I guess I'll give you two examples. So one is uh, for us, a big part of our community is around charity. So it's about linking up the causes that we saw. And we have our own foundation. So we set up a uh, uh, octopus giving back in 2014. Um, we've given uh, quite a bit of money to charities which support our mission. So they have to be driven by the same causes. So at the moment, we're supporting a business called Good Gym and a business called Thames, a charity called Thames 21. And for us, it's not just about writing the check and giving some money to these charities. Because any business, well, lots of businesses are in a fortunate position are able to do that. It's about our people being able to give their time and their expertise. That's the thing that makes a real difference. So a big part of that is how we think about community. But if I just relate this back to our energy business, say to Octopus Energy, and you think about what they're doing, and this was actually, I think it was one of the second or third articles uh, or news news um, bits on on BBC uh, on the ten o'clock news one day because it was it was interesting. So, Octopus Energy owns its own uh, wind farms, uh, and what they're doing in some communities is they're creating community energy tariffs. So the inefficiency in the energy system and a lot of the cost in the energy system it comes from the grid. So if you can create a community energy scheme where when the wind blows, the people in that local community get cheaper energy or when the sun shines, you get cheaper energy, you connect people to the renewable energy source that they're consuming their energy from. And that's really exciting. That for me is part of community. When people will not see a solar farm or a wind farm as some kind of eyesore or, or, or kind of something that spoils their community, but they actually see it as a benefit and they share in that benefit. Uh, and that's the way the energy world is is definitely moving. And that, so that for me is exciting, where you can change people's behavior as a result of engaging with them, passing the benefit onto them directly. That for me is a big part of community as well. The idea you talked about earlier of Octopus Money Coach, I've been looking into this a, a lot over the last week. And I think it's a, a really interesting um, concept and an idea that you've, you've kind of taken on. I'd love to hear kind of how you've structured the kind of deal, because obviously it was a, a startup in its own right to begin with. But that financial education is so important. And I used to get lobbied a lot in government that we should have more financial education on the curriculum. And my point back slightly at times was, you know, well, if you want to put something on the curriculum, you've got to find something you want to take off it as well. And also... There is, there is nuts and bolts of financial education that you can, you can do, but until you start earning and start your own business and things like this, it's, it's quite an abstract concept. So it's, it's almost something that people need to partly take responsibility on for once they're out in the working world to upskill themselves on. But it is, it is a challenge. Ben from Gymshark, yeah, one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the UK talked about how he didn't feel he was given any uh, yeah, much upskilling in that at all. And so Octopus Money Coach is, is looking to, to solve that and give people a long-term plan and structure that they can provide themselves around. I, uh, yeah, so lo loads of interesting points there. Um, so I think the school, the school ones are, is particularly interesting. So if we were ever to extend beyond uh, financial services and energy, I think I'd look at education because I don't think the current education system equips children with the skills they really need. So I think it's kind of squashes imagination and doesn't give them the real world skills around mental health, around relationships, around money, uh, around building a business or taking a risk. I think all of that is 
a bit broken uh, and it's, they're still learning very traditionally in a way that I don't think uh, really makes sense. But that that's a bit of an aside. Um, I also agree with you that it is a bit abstract. I still would do it in, in schools and I would cover it there. Um, uh, and we actually supported a charity called My Bank to do exactly this in schools. But I think it is a bit abstract. I think when you get into the real world and suddenly you start thinking about, gee, my goodness, am I going to get to the end of the month without running out of money? Or, you know, I'd, I'd like to get down the housing ladder or how am I going to repay my student debt? Or as I get older, am I going to have enough money for retirement? How do I think about my pension? It, it, what's really interesting here, and I think there's been a big change and a brilliant change, actually, because I think companies have engaged around mental health in a different way in the last five or 10 years. It's much more publicly accepted that people talk about it. I don't believe any of the stats where it says one in four of us has a mental health issue. I think we all have mental health issues. We're always somewhere on a spectrum. And some days we feel great. Some days we don't. And people should be able to talk about that quite openly. But if you really start digging and you say, look, what is the number one cause of mental health issues in the UK? The answer to that is money. It's the number one cause of stress and mental health issues in the UK is money. And do I think that companies have a responsibility to try and put that right and help their employees? Yes, I do. And this for me is really fundamental. So I think the responsibility of company extends way beyond just paying your employees a wage. I think companies should be responsible to some extent for the financial well-being, the physical well-being, the mental well-being of their employees. And we started using a mental health coaching business where uh, we pay for all the sessions, but the, the coaches come into our business. Uh, people can book a session with a, one of the mental health coaches whenever they want, every month, as many times as they want. Uh, and, uh, we've created this open now, opens now where people will talk openly about the mental health session they've just had with their colleagues. And that for me is fantastic because you've kind of got rid of the stigma associated with it. And when you start picking underneath them and trying to work out why people are stressed, it came down to they, in lots of cases, they just felt really, uh, stressed about money and, you know, almost half the population have never discussed a financial problem with anyone. Uh, you know, 44%, I think, of employees run out of money at least once a month over the course of a year. Something like 30% of people will look away from the screen when they take money out of a cash machine because they don't want to see their balance. This is really scary stuff. It stops you living the life you want. It stops your family living the life uh, they want. And it's, I think it's almost impossible to solve without having a person in the equation because you need someone with empathy and understanding and who's going to hold you to account and guide you to the right answer. And the best thing is we've seen with Money Coach, the difference you can make is almost instant. So when you have these conversations, people like feel like a massive weight's been lifted off their shoulders. And then just getting the core, the basics right uh, about you know borrowing from the right place, not taking out credit card debt, uh, consolidating your, your, all your loans into one rate, getting the best mortgage rate, budgeting, planning. And these are all the very basic foundations before you start thinking about, okay, investing or protect protection or getting a will in place. Um, yeah, these are all really basic things and quick and easy to do. But you, when you talk to companies and, and you can show them, this is the difference it makes to your employees and how they feel about both you as an employer, but also how they feel about their job. You know, most of these people are stressing about money many, many times a day. Uh, and that's clearly a bad place to be in, in terms of both focusing on their work, but also for them, for themselves, for their own health. And, you know, I think the right companies listen to all of that and they go, my God, 
yeah, I have got a role and a responsibility to solve that. Yeah, and, you know, and and that's the kind of company we want Octopus to be. So we had worked with this business for quite a long time. We saw the impact it had when we ran financial coaching for all the people at Octopus. And we thought, like, you know, it's one of those instances when you go, you like the company so much that you buy it. So we did. Um, and now we've rebranded Octopus Money Coach and we're in the process of taking that out to a much wider audience. And, you know, so far, so far, so good. It was making a really big difference to, to thousands and thousands of people. Do you think that part of the challenge when it comes to people finance is a British cultural thing of, of not talking about money? I think so. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think British people in particular are, are, are reluctant to talk about money. I guess part, part reluctance to talk about it and part just back to the same thing. It's really, really bloody complicated. And the financial services companies don't make it any easier because they don't explain things in words everyone understands. Um, when you can't understand something, you definitely can't trust it. So it's all too easy for it to fall into, you know, at best I'll do it tomorrow camp. And at worst, this is just too complicated and I can't engage with it. So I'm just going to pretend it's not there. But it, you, everyone's done it. The pretending it's not there bit, it always stays in your head. It always bothers you. It bubbles to the surface at times of real stress and things just get worse. I mean, I think, I can't, I think the stats are something like 16 16% of those over the age of 65 retire into poverty. And that is absolutely shocking that people spend 45, 50 years of their life working and then retire into poverty. And had they had the right financial planning and the right coaching and guidance over that period, they probably wouldn't be. And that for me is just something you just need to solve. You listen to that and you think, oh my goodness, look at the difference that's going to make to those families, to those people. Yes, I want to solve that. I want to help make that that better for those people. And so you get a real reward out of it. Selfishly, you get to feel better because you've helped to solve these people's uh, problems. So yeah, I think it is particular for the particular for the British, but you know, it's a worldwide problem. Financial literacy is really, really poor, um, but probably particularly so in the UK. Agreed. And who to just chase tax side for a moment, but who inspires you as a, um, uh, as an entrepreneur? I know you're a big fan of kind of ultra athletes and so on, but who inspires you? Uh, do you know, I love the stories. I love the stories that go into it. When you, when you hear why, you know, why people did it in the first place or, uh, you know, how their business was set up. And so I was reading the story of the, you know, I've read, um, shoe dog, uh, which is, uh, uh, Phil Knight's mm. book, which is telling the story of Nike, which is just a brilliant, a brilliant story because, you know, he's almost going bust a few times, really struggling. And then and out of that, has he's built this enormous business. Um, and uh, also when you hear the story about the person that set up Patagonia, which is kind of more my kind of business, but Patagonia, th this is a guy who was uh, really, really passionate about climbing, like really passionate, traveled the world climbing. That's what he wanted to do all the time. And he was in Scotland climbing and it was really cold one morning and he didn't have the right climbing equipment. So he went to a local store and he bought a uh, Scottish rugby jersey. And he, so he was climbing in this rugby jersey and suddenly all the things that used to rub him or kind of chafe his skin or make it difficult or irritate to climb just didn't happen anymore because it's really heavyweight cotton. And he came back home when he got back to the States. He thought, oh my goodness, I might be onto something here. So he imported loads of rugby jerseys and he sold them to all his climbing friends. And they all went, that is absolutely amazing. We, we should climb in this stuff all the time. 
And the, out of that idea, uh, Patagonia was born. And so from that, it's, it's stories like that. They're the people that inspire me that are, you know, they're not the financial engineers. They're not, they don't wake up saying, I want to make a billion pounds. They're the people that wake up thinking, do you know, I'm really passionate about what I do. I just can't help myself. And I love it. And something like this happens. And then you build the company and you build a company that everybody wants to be friends with. You know, Patagonia has its customers volunteering alongside its employees in local community projects because they feel so strongly about Patagonia, not just what it does, but how it behaves. And this, for me, is a key point about business, right? So as you build a business, almost every person will tell you that you need to outprice outcompete, outsmart, outmaneuver the competition, uh, all of which is fleeting. So you, you'll never be the lowest cost. You'll never be the fastest. You'll never be the smartest. But why does no one ever talk about outbehaving the competition, right? That is the last USP. Great business is simply about how you make your customers feel. You can outbehave these companies in a heartbeat if you hire the right people with the right culture, incentivize them the right way. That's the opportunity. That's why businesses like Patagonia are special in my mind. This was the first part of a special episode with Octopus's co-founder, Simon Rogerson. If you feel you've been affected by the issues Simon has brought up around financial literacy, and want to do something about it, do look at Octopus's Money Coach at www.octopusmoneycoach.com. Join us next week for a discussion with Simon about the future of business, where he sees Octopus going in the next 20 years. And if Simon could pick one day in time to go back to, when and where he would choose. Thank you for listening to this episode in the third series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Word of mouth is everything in the audio world. So if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and send us to a friend. You can find us at Jimmy's Jobs on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. You can also check out our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co for our episode archive, blog posts and more. If you are a new listener, do look through our previous episodes. We've interviewed entrepreneurs disrupting industries from fintech to hospitality to modern engineering. So whatever sector you're interested in, there'll be something for you there. If you'd like to get in touch, please email us at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. Thanks to our producer, Leo Danchak, and thanks to George de Cleland for the artwork. 